Hi everyone, today we are in Galatians 4, so from verses 1 through 7, Paul is continuing or more like reiterating the points from his argument back in chapter 3, verse 23 through 29. There are similar themes of being sons of God in verse 1. He talks about their identity as his child or a son in verse 5, where also Paul talks about adoption as sons. And in verse 7, this idea that they are no longer a slave but a son. The idea of a guardian is also brought up again here in verse uh, 2. But Paul does introduce a new concept that's mentioned briefly in chapter 3, verses 2, 5, and 14, but not really developed or expounded upon. And that's this idea of the Spirit. We read in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The way it is written, it seems as though the sequence is, after you become sons or children of God, then the Spirit comes into our hearts. But Paul is clearly not saying that the Spirit exists prior to becoming sons, or that it comes after to affirm your sonship. He is simply saying that the Spirit is experienced in terms of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Spirit of His Son. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily in the context of the law, um, but through being in Christ by faith. So, uh, we clearly see the Trinity here in Paul's teaching. God sends the Spirit of His Son, causing us to cry, Abba, Father, God the Father, Son, and, Hol and the Holy Spirit is in view here. And the ministry of the Spirit is what convicts you to follow God's will and obey His word. Now, in verse 7, it says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And this can be very devotionally satisfying. You are an heir through God. That is, God the Creator, all-powerful, has made us heirs, not not out of our own merit or by birth, but it's God that did that. And so that's a very powerful thought. And then he moves from the argument that he has continued back in chapter 3 back to a tone of shock and surprise in his personal appeal, uh, uh, appealing to them. It's like almost like a parent who addresses their children who have gone astray. And so he says, uh, to the effect of how is it that you listen to these Judaizers. In verses 8 through 11, we read, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you uh, want to be once more? So Paul is clearly trying to exhort them to resist these agitators. So in verse 9, it says, How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world and become enslaved again? And by this, he means that period before Christ. And so verse 8, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So we need to appreciate here the stark difference because it's not immediately apparent. Before Christ, it's in other words, when you did not know God meant that you were headed toward hell and eternity away from God. You were enslaved. And that uh, thought reminded me of uh, Ephesians 2, where Paul says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, living in the passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of the body. So it's that stark picture of life before Christ that is described here. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now think of the tragedy of that. People bowing before things that are not by nature gods, like money, career, beauty, and all the other things that the world pines after and then worships, and yet possesses no ability to actually deliver and save. Uh, they are just simply objects and dead artifacts. And so verse 9, it reads, But now that you have come to know God, that is, now that you are a Christian, and Paul contrasts that life before to now the life after Christ. Now everything has changed. We found the one true God, and with it, 
You are no longer enslaved to the stuff of the world, which has no power to deliver anyway, but have been reconnected to the true power source and as a result have eternal life. So the difference between knowing God and not knowing God, that is uh, the word know as a personal relationship with God and not just mere knowledge, is the difference between life and death, which is why we do what we do as a church and why we should pray and do whatever it takes for our family members, friends, people who don't know God to know the gospel. And this is why Paul is so incensed. How can you go back to, or the phrase here is, turn back again, or you are in danger of returning back to worthless things. And Paul says, that is of little spiritual worth. That characterized your life before Christ, following these Judaizers and adopting the law as the means through which you get you get saved, um, the, that that will end up in a dead end just like any other avenue through which we think salvation is possible. And implied here is the whole argument he began in 3.7 all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, this inability of the law to save you from the curse of the law. So in verse 10 in chapter 4, we read, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And this is probably referencing the Jewish festivals, the Sabbath, all the other rules and regulations, the weekly annual rhythm that tied uh, the Jewish people to obeying the law and therefore becoming righteous, then put the, uh, that, that put them in a hopeless situation to begin with. And so this next section, verses 12 through 20, is the uh, next part of Paul's exhortation. His initial appeal was, don't go back to the elements of the world. Now it's learned through my relationship with you. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He calls them brothers, and it seems a little jarring, but it's deliberate, a reminder of their close relationship of trust. He says, because become as I am. In other words, imitate me. And in what way? Is it that he's saying imitate his character? No, it's become as I am, as I have become as you are. In other words, both of us have died to the law. We are no longer following the ways of Judaism. We instead pursue righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a reminder of their past history. And of course, through it, it, it what through what Paul had taught, um, and in contrast to what the Judaizers taught. And so in verse 13 through 14, Paul continues to remind the Galatians of the good relationships, the relationship that they enjoyed when Paul first ministered among them. He reminds them specifically, hey, the reason why he first evangelized among them, verse 13, and how they did not respond to him in verse 14, and how they did respond to him. This bodily ailment and condition is not clear what that was. Most likely it's the reference to the thorn um, uh, thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12. Maybe it was the scars that Paul bore on his body as a result of some physical punishment from persecution, or it's most likely some persistent physical ailment, which most scholars say was an eye problem. It's probably that in verse 15 references this. Uh, it says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So, um, uh, so there's something that's uh, a problem with his eyes is in view here. So whatever it was, uh, that, that was the reason that he preached in Galatia. So Paul says, you received me and my teaching and you were relationally this close and sacrificial that you would be even willing to give me your eyes uh, if, if need be for me. So then what happened? And so uh, he says, have I then become your enemy? So Paul talks about his relational history with them. And that's 
a legitimate way, uh, I think, of exhorting someone. And why? Because we're reminded of the trust relationship. Paul delivered the gospel to them. They affirmed it as true, and they forgot all of that, and not just Paul's teaching, but the genuine desire uh, to see Christ formed in them. Like they, they forgot that that was Paul's motivation. Um, versus the Judaizers, uh, Judaizers who had ulterior motives, it seems. In verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. So one way to help you get back to the truth and not be taken by the latest fad or teaching is reorient yourself according to those who are trustworthy, who built into you, uh, assuming nothing has changed to sabotage that trust. Paul is saying, look, I haven't changed. And my teaching about the gospel is still the same. Listen to me. These agitators, these false teachers, these Judaizers, they are leading you astray. So for us, we can analogize this to cultural influencers, perhaps, people who seem sophisticated and in the know, and we can be enamored by them, but we need to be clear-minded if they are preaching something that is against the gospel, and consider whether their teaching and worldview is in line with the gospel that you received. The Galatians were led astray because they were not discerning. And finally, in the the final section, verse 21 through 31, here Paul talks about what it means to be a children of Abraham by talking about the other lineage, the one of the slave woman or Hagar. If you remember from Genesis 16 through 21, there's a story of two lineages, one from Sarah, uh, whom Paul refers to as the free woman, and then Hagar, whom he refers to as the slave woman. So what does he mean here? Paul says in verse 24 that he's interpreting this Genesis story allegorically, not arguing from the plain reading of the Genesis narrative. He is using this story to show how God has unfolded his salvation plan. And then he inserts Isaiah 54 verse 1. As you see in verse 27 in this chapter, Paul is saying Jesus is the end point of God's salvation plan and that access to him is through faith alone. So in verse 24, we read, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So in other words, the women represent two covenants in Paul's allegorical interpretation. One from Mount Sinai and bearing children for slavery. And he says that represents Hagar. Though Paul doesn't say what the second covenant is, it's clear from the flow of this letter and from actually Galatians 3.15, it's the covenant through Abraham. Uh, that is his faith being credited as righteousness, which is possible only through Jesus Christ. So the contrast he is making is from the Judaizers' teaching of the law, achieving righteousness, and then the gospel. So in tying Hagar to Mount Sinai in verse 26, is meant to show that Hagar represents the law of Moses. Moses received, if you remember, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And if you combine that with verse 25, where he says the present Jerusalem, Paul is making the tie to the Jewish Christianity in Paul's day, uh, one that is tied to salvation by works, as the Judaizers were preaching. So this final section is meant to contrast this Jewish Christianity of focusing on rule-keeping as a path to salvation and then the gospel, which is a salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As in the case with Sarah, when God promises, he pledges himself to carry out what he has promised. But when you take matters into your own hands, as Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar, this represents human effort to secure some kind of blessing. So as Paul analogizes this story with obedience to the law, he concludes that because of human frailty and sinfulness, we will always fail to secure the promise. It's only those who grasp what is promised in faith 
who are certain to inherit the blessing. So uh, Paul concludes in verse 30 through 31 by asking, what does the scripture say? And he references Genesis 21.10. It says, cast out the slave woman and her son. And by quoting this, he is wanting the Galatian Christians to do this to the Judaizer. Cast them out who have infiltrated the church with a false gospel, this rejection of Christ, and insistence on observing the law as essential for righteousness. And when you do, in verse 31, you are affirming that faith in Christ is the true inheritor of the salvation history God started with Abraham and not the law. Well, that is it. I know, again, a very long and dense text, but hope you got a lot out of it uh, as we go through Galatians. See you next time.